0: Um, Hello, um, and welcome. I'm Misha Glennie. It's uh, very nice to see you all here, and uh, believe you me, (coughs) uh, it's worth your while uh, coming to this, because you're going to hear from Francisco Cantu, um, who's written this book. This is my very well-thumbed copy, (laughs) uh, called The Line Becomes a River. And... uh, It's basically about the um, uh, US-Mexican border and Francisco's experiences uh, primarily as a border guard. They have a special uh, force there whose primary function is to monitor the illegal crossings Um, of uh, individuals coming from Mexico into the United States for a variety of reasons, but uh, above all, in order to try and find work in the US. I want to start by looking at this border. It's obviously been in the news over the past couple of years because of uh, Donald Trump's commitment to building building a, a, a wall. But I want to start by interrogating a little, Francisco, um, what this border is. When did, the, when did this border come into being? Yes,
1: yeah, so so the United States fought a war with Mexico in, um, in the 1840s, and in 1848, we signed the, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which, um, in which Mexico lost, um, I think, quite near half of their territory. More than. More 50, than half 55%. of their territory.
0: 55%. <laughs> um,
1: and so, you know, in, in, in Arizona where I live and in many parts of the, of the American Southwest, um, you know, there's this sort of adage or saying that many people who trace their lineage in the Southwest back um, hundreds of years, you know, they say the, that we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. Which is quite, quite literally true for, for many of these people who you know they went to sleep one day uh, in Mexico and woke up the next, and they were in uh, the United States. Um, so you know the the interesting there's, there's sort of a research thread that that winds through the first part of the book that is about um, the actual establishment of the border, which which actually shifted around. Um, A little bit during the first uh, 15 20 years after the treaty um, there was some land purchases uh, that happened that sort of made the the line shift and so you know I became I was very preoccupied in in writing this book with sort of um, what borders we accept as natural and and what borders feel to us imposed Um, because you know, I, I grew up as the son of a, of a park ranger, so I grew up very close to the outdoors. And, uh, you know, there's, I think, one of the overwhelming feelings that you have when you go to a remote part of uh, the U.S.-Mexico border is that, I mean, it's quite a simple revelation, but it, it, it feels somehow profound when you're standing there, is that this landscape is completely, you know, completely the same on one side of the border than the other which is sounds of course quite obvious but um, you you know there are places where you can stand um, and look out across the desert and see this border line etched across the earth um, you know with like big s- steel 30-foot tall fencing um, and then turn around and see you know just like a little barbed wire line snaking up into the mountains um, and I guess I should also add, you know, just to, to give a sense of scope that the the distance from, I think, Land's End to John O'Groats is less than half the distance of the U.S.-Mexico border. So when our president talks about building a wall, imagine building a wall from Land's End to John O'Groats and back and then still having some left over. <laughs> it's a ridiculous notion.
0: <laughs> so it was... Um, so, so this border emerged in the in the second half, in its various iterations, second half of the nineteenth century, and then in the in in the teens and the nineteen twenties, um, it became the focal point of people wanting to come into the United States illegally. But when it was First, in order to find work, rather as they do today, but in the first instance, instance, it wasn't Mexicans who were crossing the border; it was Chinese people. So, how did that happen?
1: Um, I think the Border Patrol was established in uh, like 1924 or something, um, and so you know there was there was sort of um, our anti-immigrant. Rhetoric of the day was, it was as you say, directed uh, at Chinese people. Um, we had a Chinese Exclusion Act, which was the first time that uh, the United States instituted a, a policy regulating in any way um, immigration into the country. And, um, and, you know, very shortly after the establishment of the Border Patrol uh, prohibition happened in the United States, and, and so... You then had um, smuggling, you know, bootleg liquor from Mexico being smuggled. Uh, and, and so, like, those were sort of the twin threats of the day.
0: Yeah. yeah. So they established this, this, this border patrol, which has been in existence mm-hmm. uh, ever since, monitoring uh, the comings and goings from Mexico. Um, fast forward to the present day, or at least to about 10 years or so ago, and you studied and graduated uh, in international relations at university, and most people in the United States, if they'd studied international relations, would go on and work in policy or work in business or work in academia, but you decided to take a different career path. What was that, and why did you do it?
1: It's a good question. I mean, I think you know, as you say, the path that was sort of laid before me was, um, you know, I I went to school in Washington D.C. I had grown up in Arizona in a in a in a pretty small town, and I was (laughs) eager to leave, as many people who grow up in small towns are, uh, you know, to like leave and not look back. And part of studying international relations was, you know, I thought I would travel the world and become a diplomat or something like that. Um, but I was surrounded by so many people who were like that uh, and so many people who, you know, just thought they knew everything about everywhere. Um, And, you know, you start to, like, that starts to smell off in the classroom. You're like, how does this person from, like, Connecticut know everything about the Iran nuclear crisis or whatever? Um, And so I think, you know, my reaction to to encountering that in the classroom and to being in the big city and kind of being a fish out of water was to actually turn my focus back towards where I came from. Um, And so that was the impetus for me to begin studying U.S. Mexico immigration and border issues. Um, And then I studied abroad and I worked, I did an internship at a migration policy institute. So that was sort of the most likely path for me. But I think because I grew up in the Southwest and because I had this mother who brought me up, you know. Close to the desert, out, outdoors, um, and because you know I had a sense for the cultural landscape of of the border, um, you know I I began to feel that a lot of the, the the books, the book learning that I was doing and the policies that I was learning about, um, you know, were very detached from the actual realities of, of of what I knew growing up there, and so you know the idea to join the border patrol. Um, I think really stemmed from an obsession with like the line itself, and I wanted to be out on the line. I wanted to see what happened day in and day out.
0: Um, so I'm just going to stop you there because you <clears throat> just gave away what you did. You went and joined the Border Patrol. The idea that you go back and join the Border Patrol, which is not a fabulously well-paid job, and which is uh, extremely testing in in many ways.
1: I don't know that the State Department is necessarily any better.
0: This is a very uh, uh, unusual step, I would say, I, I would say, um, dramatic. I think there was a lot of naivete
1: wrapped up in that decision. I mean, I made the decision when I was 22. Uh, when I showed up at the academy, I had just turned 23, um, and, I, and, you know, I had the idea that uh, if I did something like work in the border patrol, um, because I had all of the same questions that I think many of us are still asking about, you know, immigration reform and border policy, and um, you know how to fix it, and and you know I thought that by doing that kind of work I would get access to some secret knowledge that I would like see something that had eluded everyone else who hadn't done you know who hadn't spent the time on the ground and done that kind of work and that I would You know be able to work in the Border Patrol for four or five years and and leave with this bag of tricks and go on to be uh, you know A a magical amazing policymaker or immigration lawyer or something like that Um, And so you know I knew I mean my mother first of all was terrified that I had decided to do this Um, I think she was you know not only concern for my personal safety as any mother would be but also for you know what the job would require of me and and how it would sort of you know re- you know require me to um, I don't know like risk my spirit in a way and you know I I think a lot of young people have this idea of themselves you know especially as like in your early twenties, you have this idea of yourself as like a fully formed adult with this like fully formed sense of of morals and ethics, and so you know I thought I could step into an institution and um, you know and 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 not participate in the bad bits and you know be a force for good within the agency and like you know work to change it from within or or gather this information that would help me um, you know go on to do something great and. Um, but I think you know, that doesn't give much credit to these institutions which are really designed from the moment you step into them to sort of break down your sense of who you are as an individual um, and rebuild you in the image of, of a law enforcement agent or a military officer. I mean, the, the training is very similar. Um, and so I think you know, when I look back on it, um, it's alarming how quickly those questions sort of faded away just out of the, the need to you know, wake up every day
0: and show up to work. You also had a kind of inherent sympathy mm-hmm. for the people who were coming over. And I want to ask you at this point if you could explain to us what your um, uh, ethnic, uh, ethnic background is, uh, because of course you're a fluent Spanish speaker, which not everybody in the border patrol is.
1: Yeah, my, my mother, um, her father crossed the border when he was a young boy. He was brought across by my great grandparents uh, during the Mexican Revolution, um, fleeing the violence of the Mexican Revolution. So they really came as, um, as refugees um, in, in the same way that many people are, are, are still, you know, fleeing the violence of, of Mexico or, or Central America. Uh, so, you know, my, my mother was half Mexican. Um, but didn't really grow up with my grandfather, so my mother didn't grow up speaking Spanish um, i didn't grow up speaking Spanish I learned spanish in in, in high school and college and studying abroad uh, you know so that it makes me um, a quarter mexican you know which uh, and it makes me I guess like a third generation um, you know, third-generation migrant or or something, but you know, at that point, it's almost like, is it worth saying? <laughs> um, because in 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 America, of course, um, every everyone is an immigrant, um, not too many generations removed. But I think that what was surprising to me when I stepped into the border patrol is is how many people. Uh, do come from, do have Latino heritage uh, or Mexican heritage um, or come from like explicitly immigrant backgrounds um, and a lot of people come from the border region itself. N- now less so than, than before um, but I think the Border Patrol is, is still you know like 40 something percent Latino um, and at one time I think until the early 2000's it was predominantly Hispanic. And so you have a lot of Spanish speakers, you have a lot of you know, sons of migrants whose parents might have crossed the border themselves, and you have a lot of agents that have a sense of the border as a, as a region, um, as a cultural landscape. And so I, I was surprised because I think I, I probably entered the, the job with a lot of the same preconceived notions that most Americans have about the Border Patrol, kind of like expecting to you know, encounter a bunch of like white racists who are like, "Stay out, and keep them out." But you know, uh, the border patrol is the largest law enforcement agency in the United States. Good God! And I don't, yeah, I don't know if that makes it the largest law enforcement agency in the world, but it's probably one of I'm them. I'm
0: sure China and uh, right you know, can come up, but that is very, very significant.
1: It's significant, and it's also. Um, it also means that you have every kind of person imaginable working for this agency. I mean, I you know I worked with agents who were you know some of the most thoughtful and compassionate, kind people I've ever met. And I also worked with a lot of assholes. I mean, um, you know, guys who who really got off on having a badge and a gun. So you know, one of one of the. The themes of this book, or I guess one of the questions of this book, is to what extent can we separate an individual from the institution um, that they choose to become a part of? And that's, that's a question for myself. Um, that's one of the questions that sort of drew me to, to start writing, um, to start trying to make sense of, of what I had participated in. Um, my complicity in in an institution um, that I think perpetuates violent, flawed, deadly policy. W- one of our first days in the field uh, we tracked down, uh, you know, we were we were following a group of, of marijuana mules carrying these big 50-pound backpacks of, of marijuana through the desert and they, 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 they scattered before we caught up to them and left behind uh, not only the drugs but like a couple backpacks full of you know personal belongings and and belongings to get them through the journey and um, you know the senior agents who were our training agents sort of just like let everyone loose and kind of like gave the okay and I don't remember if it was ever like specifically communicated or if it was like a wink and a nod but like all of a sudden you know like everyone was was like you know, strewing people's clothing on cactus and trees and like, you know, stepping on food and smoking people's, smoking cigarettes out of the, the bags and um, it was sort of this like strange scene of pandemonium and, 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 we, and it was being taught to us tacitly, right? Like that, that it is okay to destroy things and strew them out in the desert and that the desert is, a, is also a place that, you know, is a trashy landscape that you can just you know, trash. Susan Sontag, uh, in, in her book um, Regarding the Pain of Others, writes about, uh, I think she is citing another journalist's work, uh, somebody who was covering um, you know, the, the, the wars in Eastern Europe in the early 1990s. Um, and she writes about this woman who would have her dinner every night um, in her living room while watching the evening news. And um, the, this journalist, you know, would watch this woman. She'd watch evening news, and then evening news would be about, you know, a, a village that's being sacked, um, you know, fifty miles, fifty miles away. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, like progressively d- during a, a week or something, that violence grows closer and closer to this woman's doorstep, uh, to where, you know, like she's she's eating dinner with the same peace and quiet and routine as every day and, and watching news of, like, the village, the next village closest to hers being burned to the ground. And, um, and that kind of disconnect is the kind of disconnect that, that happens every day. I mean, I, even when I was living there, you know, I would not read the news almost, like, intentionally, almost as, like, a, a per, like protection I wouldn't read the news of what was happening in, in Ciudad Juarez. We have to engage with the people in our communities who are most directly affected by you know, border policy and immigration policy because um, you know, they have absolutely the most to tell us. Like what opened my eyes more than working for the border patrol was, was seeing this story
0: unfold to someone I cared about. But they are the ones without the voices. So that's the, that's the irony: is they have most to tell, but they have no way of articulating it. Or you know, you came along, and it was you know very very fortunate. But Jose otherwise would not have had a way of articulating that. But
1: I think that's that's sort of like the that's what we tell ourselves as as writers, right? But I think. Um, but I think that that's also, it also shows us like where we need to move as a society and, and you know, like uh, as, as like the industry, like the publishing industry, like giving a platform to those voices um, and, and listening to those voices in our community and you know, like where, what we choose to do, like in America, after trump was elected i think uh like the international rescue committee the the refugee the main refugee assistance charity in the united states yeah. like their their donations surged which is is wonderful they do really important work but i think more important than than giving than giving money because it's easy to give money and feel good about yourself um but what's more important than feeling good about yourself is like showing up with your time and your you know your attention um you know to someone else so like use that money to bail someone you know out of jail or to find someone you know help find someone a lawyer um or or to just like ask questions and and listen because i think you know even even in this country right like we all know people who um whether we realize it or not have some connection to to this like madness Um, and you know our our kids are going to school with their kids and you know like uh, migration is intricately woven into our our society yeah.
0: great francisco that's an uh, excellent point to end on and it now leaves me only to exhort everybody in the room to go and buy a copy of The Line Becomes a River. You're a great river. salesman. You're like, you you like hit it but in the beginning, the middle, great. and the you end. Know what? It's because <laughs> I'm a writer as well. <laughs> Francisco, yeah, you've done a great job. Thank you very much Thank you much so much.